Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Jeremy Conrad, whose hardware incubator turned venture capital company Lemnos Labs has made a bet that self-driving cars will be a boon for robotic startups. This week, we talked to one of Silicon Valley's youngest billionaire entrepreneurs about what has yet to be conquered in financial technology. One of the things we've been excited by is, honestly, the traditional way of buying stuff with credit cards online is a bit ludicrous. That was John Collison, president and co-founder of Stripe, which is valued at $9 billion after its most recent funding round late last year. He spoke with Leslie Hook in San Francisco. Thanks so much for joining me here today. John, perhaps you can kick off by telling us what exactly Stripe does, because whenever I try and explain what Stripe does, I usually get it wrong. Okay, sure. What Stripe has traditionally done, where we got our start, is by providing a sort of cloud payments platform to businesses that were, to anyone who was selling on the internet. Uh, And the way we got our start with this was just that we had been doing it and we'd been tearing our hair out uh, with the difficulty of accepting money from anyone online. And I think anyone who's listening to this, who's actually (laughs) gone through with that task and, uh, and done it, understands what that process was traditionally like. And we said, this seems like a pretty common use case. Uh, And so working on making that really easy. So if you have any kind of a product you're selling on the internet, make it easy to sell that. And this wasn't your first business, right? Because you and your your brother, Patrick, had uh, started a company before. Correct. We had started a company before Stripe. And, you know, as I mentioned, that was where we got the idea for Stripe, is that you might think that it's like, what's hard about starting an internet business? Is it getting to product market fit? Is it actually writing the code uh, and, you know, getting the product out the door? Is it being able to deploy it to customers all over the world? Is it having customers hear about it, you know, uh, kind of breaking through the noise. All of that we could actually manage. It was just when, you know, people were proffering their credit cards and actually trying to give us money. That was the most challenging thing we found because basically doing business online is very, very different to doing business offline. And that sounds sort of trite. You're like, yeah, you know, that's obvious. But but then, you know, the services that, say, the various banks were providing for selling online were the exact same as the ones they were giving to offline companies. Whereas, in fact, you care much more about going international quickly. You probably have a different business model. You're probably selling a subscription access to your software product. Or even, I mean, a lot of e-commerce companies these days, you look at the Dollar Shave Clubs and the Harry's and the Birch box and things like this. It's even kind of subscription e-commerce. And so the business models are really rapidly changing. It's pretty hard, frankly, to prevent fraud online because you, you, you don't see the counterparty uh, in front of you. And so it's much easier for it to slip through. So it's this entirely different kettle of fish. And that was the hardest thing we run into in our previous business, Automatic, that we had started. You know, when we were done with that, we were like, okay, I think we know what's next. But at the time, you guys were both in school, right? In and out, yeah. So we we did Octomatic while Patrick was at MIT, and then we were actually, it was complex, you know, he dropped out for a little bit, and then we were back in college, and he dropped out again of MIT, and I dropped out of Harvard uh, for us to work on Stripe. So sadly, we have not, none of us have earned degrees yet, but our little brother is actually graduating uh, next month, so at least someone is uh, keeping up the family honor. <laughs> That's right. So Stripe functions very much kind of behind the scenes. I mean, most consumers probably used some something that's used Stripe but hasn't haven't seen that name because it's sort of in that you know behind the curtain as it were but it turns out to be a very big 
business, and you guys have uh, raised money last year at a valuation of $9 billion, making it one of the most valuable startups around. What's next? What are you guys planning to do with this funding that you raised uh, six months ago? What raising money lets us do is we have the core set of things we do to make it easy for people to accept money online. Over the long term, what we're very interested in is the general question of how to encourage more technology businesses to, to get started and how to help the existing technology businesses grow larger. This is actually kind of an interesting question, right? And it's a hard one in that is the number of technology businesses being started fixed? Is there, is there some constant that, you know, at any one time it'll be a thousand per year or, you know, 5,000 per year or something like that? Or, you know, is it an equation where the inputs are the number of graduates in certain areas from universities and the availability of capital and all these things? So what are the limiting reagents in this equation? And so we are very interested in finding ways that Stripe can help actually increase that number. We think that Stripe itself is, is one good example where beforehand th that was you know, one of the hardest things about getting an internet business off the ground was being able to accept money for it. Uh, we launched this program just over a year ago called Stripe Atlas, which is our next step in that direction. It is a way for people to incorporate a company, get access to a business bank account and get tax and legal advice, which is all fairly easy for anyone who's in the US or the UK or any of the top countries when it comes to, to internet entrepreneurship. But as you get much more further afield, we wanted to serve people in countries like Egypt, like Pakistan, like South Africa, where there actually is a lot of software talent because all the resources are available to you. You can you know, learn from online resources and things like this. But then if you actually want to take that skill set that you've developed and participate in a meaningful way in the internet economy, then it gets much harder. And so Atlas was our toolkit for letting entrepreneurs all around the world, you know, in the US and the UK, but also much further afield, giving them a smooth on-ramp into the internet economy. And, and we keep pulling on this thread. We keep going down the path on trying to discover how can more technology businesses get started? How can we, we increase that, um, that rate of innovation? Is it sort of like if, you know, if Silicon Valley is a gold rush with all these startups, you guys are the company store selling the pickaxes and the tools that other startups and other e-commerce companies will use to, to grow? Silicon Valley at, at various points in its history has felt definitely like a, a, a gold rush and I was not around for it, but, but the stories you hear of, uh, of 1999 sound like it was, it was quite a time to be around. And you know, at, at various times, it's, you know, there's been more and less uh, enthusiasm. But one of the important things about Stripe is that, I mean, yes, we serve a lot of Silicon Valley companies, so a lot of the big names you'd be familiar with here, the, the Salesforces, the Twitters, the Pinterests, will, will use us for, for uh, various things they're doing with payments. But a big part of our strategy, and actually where we spend a lot of our time, is on areas that are not the, the top tech destinations. You know, there's a few capitals, San Francisco, New York, London, places like this, where everyone expects there to be lots of startups. I think what we're seeing gradually over time is the importance of being in one of those startup hubs gradually diminish. And I mean, even if you look at a lot of the recent news, you had Atlassian going public, uh, who are based in Sydney, Snapchat, people talk about it as a Silicon Valley company, they're actually based in LA. You had lots of startups in uh, Stockholm and Helsinki being very successful, folks like that. And so we spend a huge amount of our time not just serving companies in Silicon Valley, although they're important customers for us, but making sure that 
companies all over the world find Stripe compelling. And that obviously gets pretty tricky because, you know, as we're now expanding to places like, uh, you know, we're beta testing in Mexico and Brazil, it's a very different market. Payments works very differently. There's a language barrier. You know, the businesses have different expectations. How you interact with the government is different. And so that ends up occupying a, a lot of our time is serving these, these non-Silicon Valley companies. I mean, the way people pay for goods has actually changed a lot, even just in the time that Stripe has existed. Apple Pay and Android Pay. I mean, I know Google is an, both an investor and obviously they have Android Pay. How do you guys think about the competitive threats and what that competitive landscape looks? I mean, PayPal also has a software product called Braintree that offers similar services to Stripe. How has is, how is the landscape changed and what, what do you worry about? People, you know, people tend to hear the term payments and, and so assume we compete with every other payments company. You know, the, the nature of this industry is such that it is, you know, a payment is by its nature between two people, and so you often need a bunch of participants in the in the value chain and the transaction to make anything happen. And so, in particular, all the Visa, Mastercard, American Express. Apple Pay, Android Pay, we, we partner very closely with them. They are, they are not competitors by, by any stretch. Because basically... And some of them are your investors, right? Exactly. Some of them have invested in Stripe. Yeah, uh, Visa has, American yeah. Express has. And so that, that is totally the case that it ends up being this kind of cooperative relationship. Basically, you know, what we are focused on is being the platform for accepting money for any internet business. We actually don't really mind what you use to accept money, whether you're selling with Visa or whether you're selling with, you know, via bank transfer or you know stuff like this and one of the things we've been excited by is honestly the traditional way of buying stuff with credit cards online is a bit ludicrous in that when you think about it we have the same uh, you remember the like uh, mail order forms from the 1980s where it's like you're filling out the everything you want from the catalog and sending it off like the traditional credit card forms online are basically the internet equivalent of that uh, but haven't been updated in any um, significant way and so the move to much more secure and much quicker fingerprint authenticated payment like Apple Pay has. It's huge and it's good for our business because it makes many more online uh, businesses feasible. I am still waiting desperately for when the Financial Times paywall supports Apple Pay so I can get past it because I know you have all those fields. I'm not, not going to fill all those out. They take forever. Um, I guess maybe very gauche for me to, to complain about the paywall on the FT podcast, but it, it takes forever. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, it does. And so I think it'll be good because many more businesses will be possible that were not previously possible because you've so steeply reduce the, um, the barrier to someone actually buying from you. And, and so and it's really about bringing that barrier down and that will be one of the drivers that will just make that e-commerce you know, take off online even, even faster. And that's kind of one of the big yeah. bets that I Stripe mean, is predicated the, the, on. The, the two biggest shifts in the past 10 years when it comes to, to, to internet commerce have been, one is just the emergence of, of smartphones in everyone's pockets because if you look at all the move towards ride-sharing companies, the the Lyfts and Ubers and Halos and Grab Taxis and you know globally, there's, there's a huge number of these companies. The, the, those are all made possible by the fact that you have a phone with GPS and and 3G in your pocket with you, and just kind of couldn't work in a desktop world. And similarly, I think there are all sorts of other companies that, when that platform shift happened, were were made possible and were kind of unlocked. So that's one. I think the second big one, which we haven't fully seen yet, the second big one is going to be these quicker ways of people checking out the Apple Pays and Android Pays and stuff like that. And we are betting very heavily. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And then we're already seeing them growing very quickly and getting lots of adoption within Stripe businesses because it's just night and day. I got I actually got a new MacBook yesterday and the, the MacBook has the uh, fingerprint reader in it. And so if you're buying something now online on desktop, you can just, um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Do you think fingerprint authentication is going to be sort of here to stay or do you think there'll be... It sort of doesn't matter so long as it's quicker than the you know pages of data entry that we had previously, and so fingerprint works pretty well because Apple has got to a good place in terms of usability uh, and everyone has fingers. But um, it sort of doesn't matter so long as it's quick. So I also wanted to ask a few personal questions. Oh, uh, hopefully, not, not to put you too much on the spot. But after the recent fundraising, I mean, you and your brother Patrick, both you know billionaires, at least on paper, in terms of the the shares that you own in in Stripe, what do you think you'll do with your money someday? Well, um, kind of as you flag, I think people tend to get very hung up on these calculations of of kind of paper money and uh, doing back of the envelope maths based on based on that. Right, and just for our listeners, Stripe is private company, which means that holding equity in it, it's not liquid. Correct, not. Stripe shares do not trade on on any public market. And honestly, I mean, I, at least for me, I, I think if, if we were in this for the money, I think we would have gone and sold Stripe by now or, you know, done something different. We've been working on this now for, for eight years and there's no sign of us really getting bored of the problem space. It's just like truly fascinating and you get to, it's pretty exciting when you go out and talk to Stripe users and see what they're doing and see the kind of things that are, that are possible. Uh, and so I think we, we enjoy that. I still live a relatively unchanged life from the from the life I, you know, lived five years ago and that I get up, I go for a run, I go to work and, you know, that's that's most of the work day. So yeah, I do not spend a, a whole lot of mental cycles on it. And if you think about, you know, the role that Silicon Valley plays in the tech world, I mean, you're from Ireland originally, and you guys came here, what, how many years ago? Uh, I guess I moved to the U.S. in 2009, so I've been here for eight years now. Uh, I get made fun of for my, my mid-Atlantic accent when I go home. <laughs> I mean, how do you think about Stripe's decision to be headquartered in San Francisco? Would you ever think about relocating? Have recent political events changed the way you weigh the pros and cons of doing business in the U.S.? I think Stripe does benefit from being in Silicon Valley because one of the things you get is the accumulated experience of companies that have people who have been here in the industry for, for years or even decades. And you know, a lot of the common press narrative tends to, I, I'm fairly young, tends to focus on you know, the, the narrative that everyone wants to put on these companies is these uh, young grasshoppers, you know, uh, just overnight they create some app and you know, suddenly they're off to the races. And one, the overnight success, I mean, we've been working on Stripe now for eight years and, and we, we plan on working it for the next decade. We have, we have very long-term plans when it comes to what Stripe will do. And so it's, it's not quite as overnight as people make it out to be. But on, on the youth point, 
again, the, the benefit of Silicon Valley is we have very experienced operators, we have very experienced employees in all sorts of roles at Stripe, whether it be engineering, whether it be business development, whether it be sales, things like that, and, and you get to benefit from their collective experience. And, and Silicon Valley just has a huge number of people with, with experience in the technology industry and the specific skill sets that we need. Over time, I think what's going to happen, and we already see it, we're already at the point where we have 10 global offices. We don't just have offices in Silicon Valley, but we have offices in Seattle, London, Dublin, Paris, Berlin, Melbourne, Tokyo, Singapore, all over. And I think we're going to continue to, uh, I mean, we'll be headquartered in, in San Francisco, but over time you'll see more of a presence of Stripe globally because again it's a global product you know the whole point is you can accept money from anyone anywhere and, and run your global business and so it'd be we kind of can't run it just from San Francisco it'll, it'll need to become more diffuse globally on, on the political front I think the the election was a, a shock to it was just a surprise to many people my, myself included here uh, I think the US is a, a less attractive place for immigrants than it was before November and and again even if for you know a specific person things haven't changed substantively for them or they are not affected just the whole tone of the you know the whole discourse is not one that exactly encourages you or, or makes you feel welcomed and it goes without saying but you know, I think that the main argument for continuing to bring in immigrants and, and you see this in recent political developments is the you know the, the moral one and people being able to, to to move freely I think if you wanted to put it in economic terms it is clearly crazy for the US to give up this awesome position it has where people from all around the world come to study at you know university here that's what I did uh, and you know I ended up staying in the US and ended up you know, starting Stripe and we have created a bunch of jobs in the United States you get over 50% of the late stage Silicon Valley tech companies had immigrant founders and so it's a, a huge source of the uh, kind of economic boom that the US benefits from but it is yeah it, it would be nuts uh, to imperil that. So what's the sort of long-term future for Stripe? I mean, it's eight years old. Uh, there's, you know, a couple different paths, traditional paths that uh, Silicon Valley companies tend to follow, one being sort of the IPO, the other being the acquisition. And as you allude to, you've certainly probably gotten offers in the past that you can't talk to me about. But what do you think about in the, in the long term for Stripe's future? Is it going to go public? soon or uh, no we've no plans to go public but one thing I think we have as a competitive advantage is this long-term time horizon and it's it's a little bit odd to think of competitive advantages as a time horizon or at least I don't usually see it in the in the common narrative but when you think about it a lot of the problems stripe is solving they're just really freaking obvious uh, in that uh, there are going to be a huge number of internet businesses that number of internet businesses is going to continue to grow the amount of online commerce which is still really small by the way globally it's about five percent of consumer spending happens online and so the other 95 percent has has yet to happen and a large part of where stripes growth from is, is is that spend that is currently offline moving online you know we think it should be as easy as you know you can you can, you can send a whatsapp to anyone in south africa or brazil or 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 pakistan but if you actually want to exchange money with, with those people now it's like multiple days bank fees and like you know all, all kinds of complexity we think it should be extremely simple to, to accept money from anyone anywhere these are not really you know hard to reason about ideas they're they're fairly obvious and so then you might ask the question of well why haven't these been solved before now like were we really the first people to think that this should be 
someone should offer this? And the answer, of course, is no. We weren't the first people to, to think about these sorts of problems. But part of the competitive advantage we have is we're just willing to work on them for a very long time. And so we're eight years into Stripe. You know, Stripe is now available to businesses in 25 countries. You know, we're significantly expanding the, that number of countries and we're working on more. We're working on kind of deeper ways to help our businesses. And uh, you know, the, the, the product we launched uh, just last fall was taking all the data within Stripe because now you know, every year, most Americans who, who buy something online buy something from a Stripe-powered business. You know, like we're, we're getting to a significant fraction of the... So it's more than half. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and we're getting to a significant fraction of the, the U.S. internet economy. And so, we, again, we can do more useful stuff with all the technology and with all the, 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 the data we're accumulating. But we're also pretty early on some of these things. And so, you know, like I said, we are beta testing in, in Brazil and Mexico and these places, but we're not there yet. Uh, and so I think our willingness to work on this stuff for a long time is actually a big part of what makes the business work. And so with Stripe itself, I think, I mean, the, the stuff we've been talking about all this time, helping businesses get started, helping more businesses get started, helping them grow, uh, solving cross-border payments issues. I mean, that's the kind of stuff where you're going to see us doing for, for a long time. We're not pivoting into, you know, social photo sharing anytime soon. <laughs> and going public and and being, you know, a slave to that sort of quarterly reporting system and, uh, you know, quarterly earnings and uh, things like that is, based on what you just said, you feel like being a public company is a little bit antithetical to that ability to think long term and, and explore. Well, I didn't quite say that. And, you know, if, if you look at there are some companies like... Uh, Google that have clearly done a fabulous job of both being public companies and working on a bunch of long-term projects. I mean, Google in particular, they're off, you know, reinventing cities and uh, developing self-driving cars and all this kind of stuff unrelated to their core business. I think they do a very good job of that. In Silicon Valley, there tends to be this debate between, uh, you know, companies should stay private for longer and companies should go public more quickly. And both sides tend to talk past each other a little bit. And, you know, the, the, the pro-going public argument is generally that, you know, it's not as hard as everyone makes it out to be. You actually can optimize for the long term as a, as a public company. And that if you look at Amazon, if you look at Google, lots of, lots of companies have done that and, and grown while public. And then you get the, you know, the people arguing the, the opposite side of that, where they think that private companies have more flexibility, uh, you know, more ability to innovate. They obviously don't have to publish confidential revenue details. And also, you know, your your question has an implicit assumption that you that you need to do anything in that uh, you know saying will you kind of go public or will you be acquired? I mean, you could try the in Silicon Valley very innovative business model of make money. That's true, but your investors have to get some exit at some point. I mean, you can pay out dividends to shareholders. That would be very innovative. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me, John. Thanks for coming by. It's good to catch up. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.